0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I'm your host, Ken Seymour, with your co-host, Richard Geiger. Well, hello, everyone. It is wonderful to be with you again with yet another wonderful guest to bring to you one of my favorite actors that I have enjoyed for many years and just a, uh, a wonderful person all around, Mr. Stephen Tabalowski. Welcome. How do you do, guys? It is just fantastic to have you on the show. I, you cannot just see how giddy I am right at the moment.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. We've been uh, kind of going back and forth for a little while, just like send a text message with a, a link to something, and then it goes back and forth like, I remember this, and we remember
0: this. So we're, we're pretty excited. <laughs> my uh, my son didn't quite understand it. I had to explain why it was so cool.
2: <laughs> That's You know, and this is one of the things about cool is that it's really uncool to explain why something is cool. It's kind of the definition of uncool. Like, to be cool, you have to just kind of say to them, Someday you'll know. Yeah, Just, just kind of drop it on them and walk away. Uh, did, did you guys ever hear, <laughs> on, uh, on one radio show, I, I did a story of something that really happened to me. Uh, And and forgive my voice, because I I was working yesterday, and I'm a little hoarse still today. And that is, uh, I got a phone call that I was nominated as one of the 100 coolest people in Los Angeles from, uh, (laughs) what magazine was it? It was was, uh, some, uh, I want to you know, it was... Like Chill Magazine. Again, it's some (laughs) magazine that we've all heard of but never read. Never read. Yeah. You know, the 100 coolest people. And uh, this is enormously exciting. And I called my wife over and said, honey, honey, great news. I've just been nominated as one of the 100 coolest people. And the guy on the phone said, well, wait, 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 no. You're not nominated yet. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The truth is (laughs) – we don't really know who you are. Huh? So is could you name some things you've done what? that are cool to see if we can nominate you as one of the 100 coolest people? I said, well, no, of course I can't do that. If I were to tell you on the phone what I did that was cool, that's like one of the most uncool things you could ever do. <laughs> I said, okay, we understand that, but, but – You have to understand our position. We're running a magazine and we can't just put someone in the hundred coolest people edition. That isn't really cool. So can you give us the names and addresses of people who we can call to attest to your coolness? And I said, are you out of your mind? (laughs) This is like one of the most uncool things I could possibly do is doxing my friends, like giving, giving them, giving you their phone numbers at home.
0: So you could call them to see if I I can't do that. I can't do that. That
1: sounds like a prank. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, yeah,
2: it was not a prank. So anyway, (laughs) I, uh, that's how we left the conversation. (laughs) They said, well, we'll, we'll discuss it in the editing room and we'll, 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 we'll see what we want to do. And, uh, and it began to eat at me and I thought, come on, Stephen this is like 100 coolest people why don't you fax them a list of maybe 10 things you've done that are cool just fax them a list I'm thinking like, no, Stephen, no, don't do that that's awful but I went ahead and faxed a list of 10 things I thought I did to, oh, it was Buzz Magazine Yeah, Uh, Buzz Magazine is the name of it Buzz magazine. I faxed them the list, and then I heard nothing, heard nothing, and heard nothing. And uh, then it was probably about three months later. I was in New York City, and I was at a party, and I was introduced to a woman who was editor in chief of Buzz, Buzz magazine. magazine. So I said, "Excuse me, uh, you you don't know who I am? I'm Stephen Tobolowsky." And Earlier this year, I was nominated, or almost nominated, as one of the 100 coolest people in Los Angeles, and I just got to know: Did I make it? Was I one of the 100 coolest people? And she looked at me and said, "Oh no, Stephen, no, no, you weren't. Uh, instead of you, we picked Andy Dick." What? So that's who who got my place as one of the 100 coolest people was Andy Dick. And I I talked to Taylor, dear Taylor Mm -hmm. Negron, who is no longer with us, who was nominated as the 100 coolest people. And he told me about the ceremony. It took place at a mall and you had to wear a name tag that said, hello, I'm cool. My Name Is, and then in Magic Marker, you had to write your name on the name tag, and oh you had God. to sit in a, on a folding chair underneath the escalators with the mall music going on in the background. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I see. I'm, I'm thinking I dodged a bullet. Yeah,
0: that's the first thing I thought, too. Yeah, yeah. Nothing against Andy Dick, who I, who I find wholly entertaining in many things, but uh, I yes, think that could yes. be a debate right
2: there between... <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, you, you know sometimes you can make it a hundred one
0: well let's uh, let's start at the beginning so we always okay. try and do just a little bit of uh, research and by uh, a little bit <laughs> <laughs> we mean a, a, a skimming of uh, a variety of sources that we can get our hands on here and there and some of the things that I found that were interesting that I thought thought I wanted to ask about, you know, I. Okay. You see, you see a lot of um, a lot of actors, a lot of actresses, a lot of people in the industry have certain motivations, certain things that inform them to choose the life that they've chosen. And I, I saw that uh, that you you have is this correct that you have some heritage from uh, Russia and Poland originally.
2: Yes. Yes, that is correct.
0: So did. Did you, have, uh, did you have any sort of, uh, was it like a, like a strong cultural thing that, 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 that you had some, some really cool stuff that, you know, I saw this stuff that my parents told me about and saw this theater from Poland or this theater from Russia. That's, that's kind of what I love to do. Or was it kind of, uh, kind of something that you grew into just naturally through some other stuff? That's
2: a very interesting question. Uh, the first simplest answer is no. I saw nothing interesting growing up ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I grew up in Oak Cliff, which is right outside of Dallas. Okay, we saw the Dallas Cowboys when they started out. We went to local theater musicals, but no. My mother mm-hmm. told me that she heard that in the old country that one of her father's father's father way back when they had a picture of a guy wearing black clothes and a big black beard and a big black hat sitting by a fire in the forest. And she pointed to him and she said, they heard that he was a great storyteller and he would, he would tell stories about the people in the town. And and that's what she heard. And I thought that was interesting because that's kind of what I do is kind of tell stories when I'm not acting. But, I had an interesting event that speaks kind of to the to another level of your question, mm-hmm. and that is I was getting massaged by by some masseuse, of course that's who would massage me <laughs> and and she was like a foreigner foreigner you know English was not her first or second language, and she was massaging my back and i she was Polish or Russian or something, and she goes, "You, you play the piano," and and I go, "Yes," and she's massaging, and she goes, "And you don't play jazz," and I go, "You're right, I, I don't play jazz." She goes, "You play Beethoven," and I go, "Yes." How did you know this? And she says, "Your back, your back told." there are many great pianists that come from the south of Poland and in Russia. And I go, well, I'm not a great pianist. And she said, well, maybe you could have been. Maybe you could have been if you practiced more. And and it hurts getting, you know, dissed by a masseuse. But she says, you could tell by the muscles in your shoulders, these come from Beethoven, and they don't come from jazz. And your back told me your history. And then it made me start to wonder... Where does our influence come from? How far back? Is it just the things we see? And obviously, they're things we're born to. And somewhere down the line, (sighs) I always have this kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a, a little rule I say to myself. Every city, every place you live, has something awful about it. Something terrible. But, if you find that terrible thing romantic, you will write about it. You will come back again and again. You will make that place the home in your heart. And it's true. You think about New York. You think about Seattle.
0: Where do you guys live? Bloomington, Indiana. Bloomington. Absolutely. So So
1: tell me what is beautiful and what is horrible about Bloomington. I think you got this one. Well... <clears throat> Bloomington's probably a, I, I think where it is in Indiana is kind of the key to its beautifulness. There's lots of, Indiana for the most part It's cornfields and it's flat. But at least around here, there's a lot of trees. There's a lot of water. There's a lot of hills and some, some rock. I mean, some of the interstates you got, they got to dig out some rock to get through it. So it's, so it's, it's more, it's the scenery, everything that's around. But they get, then again, maybe the, maybe the bad is the uh, scenery as well. So it's, <laughs> it, it's a, it's an interesting mix because it's a college town, right? So there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people stuck in the middle of southern Indiana. So it's a good eclectic mix of the types of people sometimes that's really good i mean it really is but sometimes bad so Uh yeah so i would say where we're at just the location of it is kind of the bad yeah so
2: i would say you know on the simplest level if if you found the night sky over a cornfield beautiful romantic and not desolate you could say like man give me some of that indiana (laughs) i dig that if if you if the the i don't know what kind of insects or birds you have if you find the chirping of the cicada or or the blue jay or whatever you have there like a morning hymn you'll dig it and you'll love it, and you'll come back to it again. Or if you just find it like vermin making noise, (laughs) you'll want to leave Indiana as fast as you can. So (sighs) I think that's the way we all are, is that we gravitate toward the things we find romantic. Like I know people who are terrified of performing, terrified of getting up in front of people. And for some reason... I never was. That that was never one of the things that affected me. But there are other things that can like make my blood run cold, and you know that make me terrified. That that don't make other people terrified. So you know we seek the things that we find beautiful and romantic, and we run away from the things that gives us terror. And I, I think that's kind of where probably my acting came from, is that somewhere inside of me, I thought I wanted to tell a story. And the first way I wanted to tell a story was acting in a play. That was probably the first one. When I was five years old, I played Hansel and Hansel and Gretel and loved it. And when I was feeding Gretel, who was played by Marsha (laughs) Housewright, when I was feeding her strawberries you know, on the road as we were falling asleep by the witch's house, I believed I was really there. And the witch was real. And we were lost in the woods, even though we were just at uh, Keys Park and the Summer Play Festival, Pee Wee Division. You know, but I believed we were there. And that's important to be an actor. And then the second way I told stories is probably music, playing the piano and the third way is telling stories and writing which i kind of do now so somewhere inside of me was the seed to tell stories
0: so it sounds like you know there there are several different schools of thought this kind of kind of feeds into another question that i had because every actor approaches a role differently you know, some, yeah. some go completely method and go into it. Some of it like to play everything as just a reflection of their own base personality. Uh, there, are, there are several gradations. So do you tend to favor more towards that, uh, that realm of getting completely in the head of the character as you become the character, or are you somewhere else along the line? How do you become the people that other people are going to remember?
2: Well, it became, it's interesting in that I lost my hair. I lost my hair at an early age, uh, at least too early for me. I was like 25 and it started falling out by the handfuls. And at that point, I was no longer going to be a leading man. And I think when you are a leading man, you tend to be played more yourself in things. Like a Paul Newman or a Steve McQueen, a Clint Eastwood, you tend to play who you are yourself. Everything, and and that's always the diss on those guys is, oh well, Clint is always the same. Yeah, yeah you know, pretty much. And and you know, Steve McQueen was always the same, pretty much. You know, Bullet was pretty much the same as Papillon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they're the same guy. Uh, but when you're playing a character guy, when you lose your hair, you have to play a character. You have to play a lot of different characters. So I've been in like a couple hundred movies, probably 300 television shows, way too many. And in those things, you, you, you play the doctor, the lawyer, the friend, the uh, client. You, you, you play all these uh, peripheral characters that are usually written in a more colorful way than the leading characters are. Yeah, the leading characters are usually pretty plain vanilla. So, over the years, I, I and I've had great acting teachers. I developed a sort of formula that I really believe in. And that is this. And if there are any actors listening out there, take this to heart because I think it's really wise. It came from a man, Ed K. Martin, who is also no longer with us, who was a great, great, great acting teacher. And Ed said that whenever you approach a part, you read a script and you ask two questions What is my greatest hope? And what is my greatest fear? And if you can answer those two questions, you could play any part from Romeo to Juliet, that every other question about that character will branch off of those two fundamental questions. So whenever I read a script, I I think about that a great deal, and those questions will inform who I become, and not always in a cognitive way, but also in an emotional way. You know, some of the questions, you just know what the answer would be without thinking it through. So it's not a mental process, but it it could be a more emotional or an, an intuitive process.
1: So, kind of based on some of those things that you said, I, I was thinking of a couple of uh, follow ups. One, and you can approach these questions in two separate ways. I was thinking, have you ever been? You said you've done so many pictures, and you've never quite been the one who's been approached necessarily as the leading person, right? Like, right. have you been given the opportunity or read a script where they somewhat presented you like, "Hey, we want you. you want we want you to be the main thing, the main focus in this movie." Uh,
2: Not in a movie, but in stage plays. In stage plays, they've offered me leads. You know, you're the guy who this whole thing centers around. Yeah, on stage, but not in a movie. But that doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. But it's just unlikely. You know, occasionally you have a film like Paris, Texas, Mm -hmm. that'll center around Harry Dean Stanton. You, you know, or, you, you know, once in a blue moon, you'll have those kind of films. But usually you don't. And and there's a reason for that, in that people don't go to see them. You, you know, people think like, well, I want to see so-and-so. And usually the people they want to see are uh, Mel Gibson in... Back in the days when he was the handsome leading man and not insane, <laughs> uh, you know, if if you want to be uh, God, name name five of the leading actors now, and I'm sure they're all, you, you know, no, like, handsome guy. You Tom know, Cruise
0: is still going strong, right? Tom
2: Cruise is still going strong. Uh, you, you know, you name them, you know, it's true. Yeah, and and that's because those are the people. That they feel they can build a film around is is someone who's attractive.
0: I love seeing it flip though, because I it, it seems maybe maybe it's just in my mind, but it seems that in the last decade or so, maybe maybe a little more, that things have maybe just slightly shifted. Uh, some actors that you could see uh, as often in a, in a similar position to what we're talking about, like a, a William H Macy. Uh yeah, will get yeah. like shameless and that and it's fantastic oh, yeah. in it. Absolutely.
2: Especially, you know, on TV, uh Bill Bill could play a leading man in shameless. You know, absolutely on TV, especially cable TV. Hmm. Remember, cable TV is different than network TV. It's true. So you're gonna do stories that are more on the edge. Yeah, you could have Bill who's a great actor like that doing that. But how many films has he been a leading the leading man, <laughs> you, you, you know, uh, the and, and even <laughs> the, f- the cooler, yeah. uh, You know, even films like Wild Hogs. You know, he he really was, in a way, the most charactery of the four main guys.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, you know, all the other guys were more the leading guys. He was the more off based one. Even in the Cohen brother films, he plays like. The Off base guy, even in uh Boogie Nights,
0: yeah, you know, well,
2: he doesn't play the leading guy. You know, in Boogie Nights, yeah. you, you have uh Mark Wahlberg, mm-hmm. and, and that's as freaky a movie as you're ever gonna see, yeah. And 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 even in movies that have been hugely successful, like the Batman trilogy, Heath Ledger is gorgeous. He's a gorgeous man, or was a gorgeous man. Yeah. You know, he had to cover his face with all sorts of makeup to make it look like he was disfigured Speaking. in some way, as the Joker. But Heath Ledger is a leading man, gorgeous. Uh,
0: that's it's that is definitely true. I I I've never, at least myself, found. Found me the thing that draws me to a film. I, I look at the cast, but I'm almost never really looking at the leads. I I, I tend to favor tend to favor villains. I tend to favor uh, the the secondary characters because, like you say, a lot of times you get a lot
1: more play with that. Yeah, build the foundation on the movies a lot of times. So, so
0: they give you they give you more flexibility on theater, and a lot of people have a love for theater that's different than a love uh, for small screen or big screen. Right. What are, what are some, of the, some of the stage productions that, that come to mind that, that you've been a part of that you thought were extraordinary in some way, whether the, the, the way that it went off or the effect that it might have had on you after the production?
2: Yeah, uh, I did The Wild Duck by Henrik Ibsen. Uh, I played the lead, lead in that, Yalmar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played Captain Shotover in Heartbreak House. And that one I had to play an old guy, but he's the lead. Uh, <laughs> on Broadway, I play—I I played Homer in Mornings at Seven, which was a remarkably beautiful production, just absolutely stunning. And the wonderful thing about doing something on Broadway is everyone from your life comes to see the play, and then they come to say hello to you afterwards at the stage door. And so you see. People like a very funny example. Uh, It's not funny, funny in that it's so odd. So, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I played baseball and I always thought I was going to be a professional baseball player. And I mean when I'm 10. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time I was 14, I knew I didn't have the talent to be a baseball player. But at 10, I did. I played first base. And I was cleanup hitter because I was the biggest 10-year-old in our school. And we had uh, an infielder on the Dallas team at the time named Ray Jablonski. And Ray Jablonski was an infielder and a cleanup hitter. And his nickname was Jabbo. And so I was such a monster, so ferocious at the plate and such a great fielder in honor of Ray Jablonski, when I was in fourth grade, they gave me the nickname of Tobo. Hmm. So the kids who played baseball with me called me Tabo, Tobo, after Ray Jablonski. Well, I grew up and that nickname kind of sort of vanished. In fact, my kids, in some form or another, took The nickname, my youngest son, William, is now called Tobo. And my eldest son, Robert, they call him Tob. But my nickname vanished with time until I was on Broadway. I'm on Broadway and I come out and one of the kids who used to play baseball with me when I was 10 years old at Keys Park, Fred Alsop, he came up to me and says, Tobo, it's so amazing to see you on stage, man. I just expect you with the bit on your hand and all this kind of stuff. Well, the woman who played my girlfriend on that show, Julie Haggerty, was standing next to me and heard this conversation. And she said, Tobo, you were called Tobo. And I go, well, well Julie, when I was little, Tobo. So Julie calls my agent and calls my manager. The next day, and she says, from now on, we have to call Stephen Tobo, because that was his nickname. <laughs> and so suddenly, well, now, now, here I am at 67 years old and counting, for the last, since 2002, since I did that play on Broadway, <laughs> now people are calling me Tobo again, that the nickname has resurfaced, all because of baseball and Julie Haggard. That's kind of fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's well played, an example of the way a play affects you.
0: Okay. So you've you've seemed to have some some balance. I know my co-host here has a question that I'm actually going to feed towards him, but just because, uh-uh. you know, uh-uh. he he found uh, he found a clip from uh, from a story that you had had told specifically, okay. and we we've talked about you know we talk about movies, we talk about music, and you tend to have your finger in several pies, including music. You mentioned you play piano. Well, you've had some opportunities to play with some rather interesting people.
1: Yeah, so I, 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 and I'm sure you've related this story to a lot of folks already before. But um, when you were growing up, you were not in a band with, but you played with a 14 year old Stevie Ray Vaughan, which at that time was S- Stevie Vaughn. Uh, I just that thought that correct. was that was pretty darn interesting. Um, and you don't have to go into All this random detail about it, but you know, from what was that short little experience like? Because at the time, you saw his greatness, but you didn't know how it was going to turn out down the road.
2: Well, we never know how greatness will turn out, nor how mediocrity will turn out. You know, we, you know, I've lived through several ages in which mediocrity has been held up as the, the gold standard. And and the thing about greatness is you have to have people who recognize uh, the difference between the great and the not-so-great. So, great. so I, I was 19, Stevie Ray was 14. The, w- the way it worked was we our group cast of thousands, we were terrible. We were We were <laughs> not very good. We had one person in the group who really could play instruments, and that was Bobby Foreman. Uh, one of the heads of the group who ended up playing in the new Christie Minstrels I mean Bobby is one of these guys talk about where did he get his influence Mm. he was one of these people who could play any instrument in the world he could play a violin he could play a cello he could play the guitar like crazy he could play the drums the bass he could sing he's a real musical talent so based on his skills We were picked as one of the uh, five garage bands to be highlighted in Dallas for an album. And each band would get to play two songs on the album. And then the band members, like Girl Scout Cookies, we would sell the album door to door. (laughs) There was no distributor for this record. It was called A New High. H-I, and none of us knew it was about marijuana. None of us <laughs> knew that, that this title was somehow drug-related because we grew up in Texas where nobody nobody smoked any marijuana. You know, we thought a new high was, was going to be the new Ferris wheel at the State Fair of Texas. <laughs> we had no idea. So anyway, we're on our way to the studio, and Bobby is saying, well, I've asked some kids from the neighborhood to play on the band to play in the band with us because we had no drummer. So we got Chris Lingwall. We, we uh, got our bass player. We, we got a uh, lead guitarist. Uh, and so we're on the way over there. I said, well, well who, who who are these guys? He says, well, you know, I got Stevie Vaughan from the neighborhood. He's, he's a kid. His brother Jimmy plays too. And I go, Stevie, I, I, where does he live? And Bobby told me. And I go, I go well, who is it? I don't know anything about him. He says, well, he's 14 years old. And I go, Bobby, what? He's 14 years old? Bobby, we don't need any 14-year-old kid playing guitar on our music. I mean, we could play our own guitars. We're not like the monkeys. And, and uh, to which Bobby turned around and said, Stephen, shut up. This kid is so good. He's going to make us seem like we know what we're doing. And so we go in there, and Stevie was uh, sitting on a metal folding chair with his big Gibson in his lap, and he goes, "Uh, "Hey guys, so uh, you want to play for me your song, so uh, I could kind of see what I'm supposed to do?" And so we started playing our first song, "Red, White, and Blue," and we played really about seriously, not exaggerating, about eight seconds of. And Stevie goes, "Okay, okay, okay." stop, stop, stop. I got it. I got it. So this is kind of a crappy song. So what if I were to do like a crappy lead and then kind of go into a good lead? And we go, sure, fine, whatever. (laughs) And, and, uh, and so, uh, let me see if I can, I don't know if I can engineer this for you guys. Uh, I think I have a sound file on the old days. You know, we all stood around the microphones and we everybody played and sang. We did the master that way. There was no separation, no drums, no nothing. I mean, nothing was separated out. It was just a big old party. And then they go to Stevie and they go, okay, son, do you want to do a lead? And Stevie did, uh... Stevie did, uh his crappy lead into a good lead. And let me see if I could get this up for you guys. See if you could hear this. Let me go over here and see system preferences. Let me see if I could do the sound. Let's see if my son Robert fixed this up. No, I don't think he did. Let me see if I could do this. Okay, so let me see if I can uh, see if you could hear this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely a, that? a, a very good we, we heard it. I don't know if it's gonna come through on the other end. Yeah, we we could hear it. <laughs> and I could hear it exactly the spot that you were describing. It's like oh I'm gonna yes. play like this and then I'm gonna change. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but anyway it was amazing and everybody the, the grown ups who were there supervising, they were amazed. They were amazed at what they saw how brilliant this kid was. And we all saw it, and we all knew it. And it's true. Uh, I had a friend of mine, Bob Darnell, and he said that there's a difference between honesty and truth, that honesty you could beat people over the head like a bludgeon with, but truth, once people see it, it changes everything. And that's what Stevie was. He played you knew it was the real thing and you could never you can never unhear it you could never unsee it
0: yeah he was he was one of he was one of those artists that I had always wished I could see live but didn't understand hear or appreciate until unfortunately well after he was already no longer uh-huh. with us and uh, that was that was really un- yeah. unfortunate. But he was fantastic.
1: Too too young to appreciate what um, he was. Yeah. Now yeah, I know. Yeah. So okay, so
0: we've got this. Uh, we'll we'll uh, segue back into a, a slightly different uh, set of questions here. So you've got um, you've got a, a wide array. You're talking about the number of different projects you've had over the years. And I'm sure that you get inundated with with people that recognize you from a handful. Now, I'm sure a lot of it now is is due to the television shows that, that you're working on, like the the Goldbergs and One Day at a Time. But do you still get just a large number of people that happen to want to recite portions of Groundhog Day to you at any given time?
2: Uh, about every day, <laughs> oh, geez. literally, literally every day. It happened to me twice today.
1: Holy cow! How do
0: you react to something like that? Because there, there are there there are a handful of things that you become known for, iconic for, if you're lucky, within within the industry. And I'm sure there's there's a level of it's like that's great that I'm known for it, but, but. every day how do you how do you process that
2: well i th- i think that would be a pretty sad way to look at it it is a rare thing to be a part of a project that is so beloved like groundhog day yeah and it's a pretty small take on it to say like yeah but you know
0: <laughs> you know
2: <laughs> i also could do something else you know uh, you know i've had a very long and varied career and the fact that I was able to be in a movie that I think really is kind of like the new Wizard of Oz you know they always used to show that film every year on TV mm-hmm. when I was a kid and I think can't remember exactly when but it was around some holiday like Easter and they would show Wizard of Oz or something Christmas sometime in Texas I knew mean, they always showed it I remember we were always terrified at the Flying monkeys. But uh, Groundhog Day has got that now every February 2nd it's on TV everywhere all the time and uh, not only that but something that The Wizard of Oz never did and that is that Groundhog Day has usurped reality I was watching a new show well several times I've watched a new show in which a reference one of the commentators make is, well, it's like Groundhog Day in Washington. <laughs> and what they're talking about isn't Groundhog Day, where the groundhog comes out of the ground to see a shadow. They're talking about a repeated event
1: which has nothing to do with the real Groundhog Day. Oh, yeah. it's right? a
2: movie. It only has to do with the movie. And so the movie usurped reality and Danny Rubin who the screenwriter of Groundhog Day never really intended it to be Groundhog Day necessarily when he was writing the movie (coughs) he just thought it would be fun to have the movie have the name of some holiday and so he thought like well could it be Valentine's Day or maybe it's Thanksgiving that's repeated or Oh, that may be too, you know. And, and it was through a process of elimination and, and luck and happenstance that it, it became Groundhog Day. It, 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 because he didn't really want the repeated day to have anything to do with the holiday itself. But, but you know, that's a pretty rare thing for, a, I'll call it art, for a piece of art like Groundhog Day. To completely usurp the real world, so that's a great honor, and and I'm not going to uh, turn my nose up at that just because I happen to be a part of it.
0: Well, I gotta say, it definitely has affected a lot of people. I I have been uh, I've been getting the eye rolls from from my kids regularly because I have been reciting lines from that movie in in preparation for this. Oh, <laughs> probably dear. probably for the good part of about a week and a half now and i've i've had i've had most of the lines of that film memorized for quite a number of years it, it's
1: <laughs> one of
0: my favorites of all time
1: i, I guess okay. i never even thought about it too that it, it, that's literally a coined phrase like that i guess i use all the time i guess i never even really thought about that as yeah. being derived directly from that movie i just always thought it was a reference that everybody got you know
0: well look at the number yeah, yes. Look at that. Have you had the opportunity? I'm sure you have to see several send ups to that from other productions, whether they be uh, plays or television shows. Supernatural had an episode that was a Groundhog Day episode. There's a movie actually getting a sequel out that's Groundhog Day, basically, if it were a horror film. Uh, it's just, so I mean, there's there's all all manner. Well, there of different...
2: was Happy Death Day. Yeah, yeah.
0: that's the Which one. Was Groundhog...
2: there. there was the Tom Cruise movie, uh, where he's the soldier that's always getting killed, and he keeps trying to figure out how not to get that's killed. Right. Yeah. That's right. That one. That one. A bad film. No. Uh, except you know, it's a little darker than Groundhog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other nice thing about that film. There's a. Uh, a lot of little uh, philosophical insights. Did that come from the writer? Did that come from a collaboration? Was
2: I think it came from a collaboration. I think it came from uh, Danny, the screenwriter, and also from Harold Ramis, who was a practicing Buddhist. Mm. And, you, you know, I remember I asked Harold, we were, you know, everyone asked the question, well, how long is Bill in the town for real? And, well, he's in town long enough to learn to play the piano like that, you know. <laughs> and, and they cut some scenes out of Groundhog Day. Like when he goes into the diner, uh, if you remember that set, behind the uh, counter is a library. Yeah. Like there are books all across it. And, and there was a sequence that was edited out of the film where he's at one end of the library, and he just reads each book <laughs> in the library till it, it's like, you know, he's read every book in town. And they cut that whole sequence out. Oh, man. But, you know, just to show, so I asked Harold Ramis, I said, well, how long does this take? And Harold Ramis says, Bill is in town for 10,000 years. Because in Buddhism, the principle is that it takes 10,000 years for the human soul to be perfected. And that is what the story of Groundhog Day is, about Bill's soul being perfected.
0: That's kind of awesome. 10,000 10, years. Wow. So that same general time frame, another film was released that um, that, that you were part of and actually has a bit of a crossover. We were lucky enough to... Uh, uh, talked to Carl Sierra uh, folio uh, just a few days ago he was a stunt man and does quite a lot of stuff and he was actually in sneakers with you yeah. at one point another of yeah. the ones that is kind of iconic in my mind from one of the ones that I yeah. can watch regularly brilliant. it's w- a brilliant movie so and
2: yeah yeah go
0: ahead no no I just sorry. gonna say yeah, so tell me what that particular cast I, I feel that's a gem that a lot of people just look overlook completely
2: yeah it was one of the greatest casts ever assembled. And I was happy to be on board in that show. And uh, I remember I had done some film and my agent sent me over this script for Sneakers. And I'm going like, oh, God. So now I'm starting to do these stupid teen movies? Oh, come <laughs> on. And I start reading Sneakers. And I get to the end of it and I call my agent up and I said, now I know what a hundred million dollars reads like Mm -hmm. and that's back in the era where no film ever made a hundred million dollars and I just go this is such a great script this is a huge hit it's going to be a hit and I didn't even know what the cast was going to be then
0: Yeah,
2: one of the most astonishing casts ever assembled but what's really remarkable about Sneakers if you haven't seen it you have a treat in store for you and that is it breaks every modern screenwriting rule. And it is a caper film, a techno caper film that has cable modems in it. And it is still, it is still not out of date. No. It, it's still current. It's still cutting edge in the future. And, and it's amazing how the concept of the suspense of that film is so all current and, and it, it maybe has outlived the technology, but the technology helps support what the story is. It's just fantastic.
0: Yeah. uh, What, what, um, what other film do you think of that, one of the ones that you've done that you, you, you get talked to about a lot of different films. What's another of those kind of hidden gems that you, you were able to be part of that you thought, man, if people are able to see this, this is something truly special?
2: Yeah, Memento. That's, that for a long time was the, you know, it, it came out, and Memento was the number one uh, independent film ever made. And, and now may, there there may be My Big Fat Greek Wedding or something that may be bigger, but it was the beginning really of Chris Nolan's career. He made a film before that, but that put Chris on the map as like a great director. He and his brother wrote that film, and it's, talk about a brilliant script. Memento is unforgettable. It's just a stunning movie, and people talk about it all all the time and ask me about it all the
1: time. Yeah, that one's pretty good. That's that's about the time when I was actually working in movie theaters, building movies and putting those things putting the, all the reels together and a few people come and see it and they just come out with a reaction, like, Oh man, that movie that movie was great. You gotta go watch that movie And after I saw it I just told everybody about it. I was like, Man, you gotta go watch this movie and that's a really, really good movie. Very underrated. Yeah. All right, so yeah. So we're kind of we're kind of
0: winding up i'm I'm winding up my pitch to get towards something a little more current because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know you, you've got some you got some more things that you're doing but on my way there I have one kind of final movie related kind of more TV related question to ask you about because you know we all I, I've talked to several people in the industry, you know, that uh, there are shows that they tend to like. And one of the ones that you were in a while back, you're in Heroes for yeah. a, a good chunk, and you were able the to second work. Second
2: year, yeah,
0: yeah, you were able to work <coughs> into uh, um, work with a um, actress, uh, uh, Kristen Bell.
2: Yeah, she played my daughter. If you could imagine the genetics, I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking like. Who was I married to? That I mean, what babe had
0: me? That like we had Kristen Bell as a daughter. I'm, I'm still shocked at that. Well, you could turn things into gold.
2: So that's
0: right.
2: Yeah. There you go.
0: <laughs> but so Kristen, I know, I know uh, your most recent book that uh, that you wrote, uh, "Adventures with God," um, yeah. kind of uh, treads sort of into this in this realm she's in a show called the good place right now have you had a chance Uh, to see that yeah Uh, so do you think i'm starting to see it feels like anyway more shows that kind of tread towards philosophy and theology and that that sort of a thing uh, it seems to be, you know, something that's, that's not just something that people want to talk about, but people want to see kind of integrated in a, in a higher form. Um, in your, in, is that kind of, uh, what you're trying to, uh, do with your book? Uh, I haven't had a chance to read it yet.
2: Yeah, no, no, the, the book is, uh, well, both of my books are kind of the same, you know, the same thing twice. And, uh, I had a terrible accident in 2008 in that I broke my neck riding a horse on the side of an active volcano in Iceland. Wow. Uh, and I got back home and the doctor said I had a fatal injury, which obviously I did not. And, <laughs> but there isn't a lot you could do when you have a broken neck. So I started thinking, like, what if what the doctor said was true? And I really died on that mountain in Iceland. What are the stories I never told my kids about their dad? And so I started writing stories from my childhood and falling in love for the first time and having my first adversary. And, uh, you know, just all sorts of stories that I never told my kids about me. And uh, these stories were recorded and put on the Internet by this guy named David Chen. Because he heard that I did stories, and he was interested in storytelling. So he recorded them and put them on the Internet. Then someone from NPR heard the stories, started playing them on their radio station. It ended up on a dozen NPR stations around the country. And then Simon & Schuster said, can we do a book of your stories? So <clears throat> my, my uh, books have to do with kind of the miraculous, not necessarily in a theological way, but how, like the Russian masseuse who was able to say that I played Beethoven because my back told her. You know, Hmm. I think that's kind of amazing. Hmm. And, you know, so I had these true stories, like in my first book, a story how I was held hostage at gunpoint in a grocery store, and how I got out of it alive, Uh, along with dealing with the teacher who was trying to destroy me in school and how I ended up surviving that situation. And the second book has stories like the broken neck in Iceland and other weird things that happened to me that there's no real explanation for, but kind of the magical reality that we live in. And so the second book, My Adventures with God, the premise, I've told Simon and Schuster, and I will tell your audience, is that I think that everybody's life kind of falls into the template of the Old Testament. That we, first of all, everybody has a genesis. These are usually the first stories we tell on a first date over a first class of Chardonnay about who we are and who our families are, and what our aspirations are and our terrors. Then we all go into slavery like in Exodus or graduate school to some other people. <laughs> and then We have a Leviticus moment in the middle of our lives where we go like, wait a minute, this is what I am, and this is where I got married and I became a father, and I returned to Judaism, which was the religion of my childhood, and embraced it. And then we are all reshaped by mortality. As we begin to lose family and friends, they start dying, like in the book of Numbers. And then, if we're lucky, we get to the book of Deuteronomy, Where we tell our stories to our children, just like Moses told the story of the Hebrew people to the Hebrew people, because they forgot it, because they've been wandering in the desert for 39 years. So I told Simon and Schuster, this is, I'm going to do my true stories in the template of the Old Testament. And he goes, that's great. Do that. So that's my adventures with God. But basically, they're just still true stories about my life, and most of them are funny, and some of them are not. And, uh, but in terms of the Kristen Bell thing, I think it was what Chesterton, I think that was his name who said, when people don't believe in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in everything or anything. I'd have to read his quote. Mm -hmm. And, And I think what happens is, you know, we go through a period of where atheism is cool, or, or just where people don't believe in anything. They believe in science. You know, they believe in science. Even though if you were to ask, well, why? What in particular do you believe about science? Uh, because you could say, well, quite often science is wrong. You, you know, So what are you believing in? People always end up believing in something invisible with certainty. Whether it be science or whether it be religion. So there's a cycle that people go through, and either they're what we used to call holy rollers, and they follow a religion's dogma all the way through, and then they, other people rebel against that, and that goes into atheism, in which you believe in astrology, and you believe in comets, and you believe in fortune-telling and rabbit's foots. And then you go through and you start believing in uh, the good place. And you start turning, you know, philosophy and everlasting life into entertainment. You, you, you know, I don't know anybody from skeptic to holy man who doesn't carry a rabbit's foot of some kind. And, and as human beings, we are very plugged in into the unexplainable, the mysterious, and the invisible, which is why people go to the movies. And they believe in movies. And they stand in line to see the new Star Wars films. Yeah, you know, it's it's magical reality.
1: Well, no, so, did you did you have a, a follow up also with the you were mentioning some of those incidents that happened to you. Wasn't there another one like shortly after you were held at gunpoint? Didn't you have something else happen shortly after that too?
2: Uh well well I've had tons of Things happen yeah. to me, but I, I think maybe what you're thinking of is after I broke my neck in 2008, in 2011, I had open heart surgery. And that's wow. when my wife Ann said, Can we be done with this part of our lives? I'm so <laughs> sick of hospitals. Can we just move on? She says, Now that you got your head on straight and your heart is back to normal, can we just live and love and go on? go on a vacation vacation. do something simple
1: i like that idea that's a good idea
2: yeah you you know so but yeah there were i just you know in my life there have been several situations where i kind of faced off with the Grim reaper and it will change you every time you do you feel like you were lucky you got away and uh so yeah, I write about those events in my book for sure.
0: Sounds like it's pretty, pretty powerful. It just everybody wants a, a chance to connect, and I've always thought that the best way to connect with somebody is to see people when they experience those those powerful moments, and uh, and it's, it's wonderful to hear little a little bit about that. Um, well,
2: do you have Do you have like three minutes for a story?
0: Absolutely. Uh, yeah.
2: Okay. Well, it's just an example. So in my book, My Adventures with God, in the Exodus section, I talk about when I moved out to L.A. with my girlfriend, Beth, and we had no career, no agents, no chance of any success, and we would sit around with our other friends from Texas and drink beer into the night, cursing away how we had no chance of anything. And then one night, I came in and I said, guys... I have a great idea I was just listening on the radio driving around today to this album Red Headed Stranger mm-hmm. and you know this guy Willie Nelson I think he's the real deal mm-hmm. I mean I think he's got talent I think he's going to go somewhere and my friends are just looking at me with their jaws dropping and they said he's already gone somewhere Red Headed Stranger is the number one album in the country and I go well even better even better I said, what if I wrote a song for Willie Nelson? And if he plays the song, if he buys the song, you know, we'll have money to go to acting class. We could pay the rent. We could probably parlay that into getting an agent. And we were at the stage of the evening and the number of beers to where they go, sure, why not? (laughs) So I sat at the piano and I wrote a song for Willie Nelson. And I recorded it on the little cassette in the phone answering machine. And we all, we all sat around. I mean, we're talking about high powered recording. We all sit around at one in the morning, just thrilled. And I said, guys. Now all we have to do is wait. I'm going to take it to the mailbox tomorrow, send it to Willie. And my girlfriend, Beth said, well, where are you going to mail it to? And I said, good point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, but you know that Willie Nelson—he's probably like Santa Claus. I bet you so many people write to Willie Nelson. That if I just mail this tape to Willie Nelson, Austin, Texas, it'll get there. And the next day, I mail it—a little envelope covered with stamps. Willie Nelson, Austin, Texas was the only thing that was on there, and I never once thought that this tape would never get would. It, would it never crossed my mind it would not get to Willie Nelson. I just thought this is going to be such a great story when Willie plays our song on The Tonight Show. And I get to tell Johnny Carson the hilarious story about the song. <laughs> That's That part of the story is in my adventures with God. So I release, the, the book is released. And I get a tweet from Rio de Janeiro of a young man, Gabrielle Barreto, who he said, he remembered me working on a movie with his father in Rio de Janeiro when he was a little kid. And I go, that's true. I did Bossa Nova with Bruno Barreto, a very good movie if you haven't seen it. And his mother, Bruno was married to Amy Irving for real. And Gabrielle Barretta was their son. And I remember this one day on the set, there was this little kid. So Gabrielle is tweeting me and he said, well, I remember you from the movie. So I thought I would get your book, My Adventures with God. And I wonder, do you still have the song for Willie Nelson? And I said, well, actually I do because... A couple of years ago, I re-recorded it with some of my friends just so I wouldn't forget it. He said, well, if you have a sound file, send it to me because I'm standing next to Willie Nelson right now. <laughs> and I'm tweeting. I go, what? And he goes, yeah, I grew up to be a director and a producer and I'm doing a documentary on Willie and we're friends. And I showed him this part in your book about how you wrote a song for Willie Nelson. And Willie wants to hear your song.
0: uh, so
2: I'm going okay so I send the song to Willie Nelson to Gabrielle Barretto and Gabrielle tweets me says Willie is listening to the song now he's laughing he's looking at me and giving me a thumbs up Uh, Stephen I don't know if Willie's going to record this on his next album but I wanted you to know that when you send that song to Willie Nelson Postmarked Willie Nelson, Austin, Texas. It did finally get delivered forty years later, <laughs> and that's the way art works, and that is the way movies work, and that is the way pop culture works. Is that these these things go into the air and you never know where they're going to land?
0: That's that's Solid. truly amazing. Um, I. Yeah, that's good. That's, yeah. I don't even have words. That's just, that's just fantastic. I Thank you for sharing that. I, uh, oh, my pleasure. One of the things that I've always enjoyed the, the snippets that, that I've heard when you speak, and uh, the, I, I feel this could be my own imagination, but I always felt when watching you that you tend to always kind of generate a, um, a positivity through uh through the the work that you do and it's and it's de- definitely i've always appreciated it
2: over the years well thank you thank you very much
0: um so i uh just wanted to pass it over any final questions for our esteemed guest
1: oh well, we got lots of questions but right
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, before but, before yeah. before we completely destroy this nice gentleman's voice, <laughs> yeah, his lively. its just his livelihood. It's not that. Yeah. Um, well, uh, thank you again for being on our show, and uh, hopefully Let we me can just
2: give this shout out to the people who who are going to hear this. Yeah. And because on on my little book tour, I've been on the book tour all over the place for both books, you know, but just finished. My Adventures with God, and everywhere I go, people ask me about One Day at a Time, that this is a new kind of show on Netflix, even though we're just, we are just finished our third season. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend that it is magnificent. It is really one of the best shows on TV, one of the best things I've ever seen or been a part of. And uh, the new season, season three, I have heard, is coming out sometime near the beginning of the year. Probably sometime in February. And so if you want, I would get on Netflix and binge watch those first two seasons so you could be up for season three. I think you will laugh, you will cry, you will you will think like I think that my goodness, they're able to do some good T V. And, and we're in an era. An era you guys know this more than anybody, I bet. We're in an era of great television now, oh, absolutely wow. great television. And one day at a time, in an era of great television, is one of the great shows on TV.
1: And it's easy to consume, right? 30, 30 minutes an episode, thirteen episodes, so it can. It's not like you got to sit there for five hours to watch one episode. It, it, it's That's easily. Right. Yep. So just just
0: as a question, does. Is this a, a remake or is it an extension of the original show? Is it unrelated completely?
2: It is. It is. Uh, I would have to say more in the realm of remake reimagining. Okay. The, it is a single mother, like in the original. It, she has two kids, like in the original. But in this case, it's a Latino family. They're, well, they're from Cuba, Cuban family and uh justina Machado is the lead she played a uh, she was a nurse in afghanistan in the show and she's uh, a veteran and the the war broke up her marriage and so she's raising her kids alone with her mother in los angeles and her mother's played by rita marina uh uh We have a Schneider who takes care of the building, Todd Grinnell, who's hilarious (laughs) and different from the original Schneider, but still it's Schneider. And I play uh, the doctor, Dr. Berkowitz, who employs Justina now in her current job. And I'm in love with Rita and Rita wants nothing to do with me. (laughs) So so that that's kind of the, the breakdown of the show. But just like in, in Norman Lear is our executive producer. Oh, it's, so, so just like all in the family and all those shows before it takes on current themes, but without being preachy about anything. Uh, it's, it's a, a show that's about humanism and it's about hope and it's about cruelty and, and day to day getting through one day at a time. and, it's like I say, it's both hilarious and heartbreaking at times. It's a great job. It's unique.
0: Well, I will most certainly give it a watch. Yep. I, I, <laughs> I will tell everybody about it. Anything that's got you in it, I will tell everybody about. Yeah. yeah.
1: Any other um, websites or social media things that, or things about your book that you want people to kind of check out as well?
2: Well, I guess, you know, my book is kind of everywhere you could get it on uh, Amazon. Uh, That's the Dangerous Animals Club is the first book, and My Adventures with God is the second book. But if you just put in my name in Amazon, like the two books will come up. And I think they're both almost five stars. You know, know, there's always one guy who thinks (laughs) they're giving it a a one-star review because it's the best book in the world. I hated that. You know, I look, the guy gives me one star. I'm thinking, what is the one star on my book? He like, <laughs> this is the best book I ever read. And I go, you <laughs> want <laughs> read the instructions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the number
1: but, one book. Yeah.
2: yeah, the number one book. So, uh, but anyway, it's there. It's on Audible. If you like the Audible version, and I do the reading of the book. So if you like me reading the book to you, it's on Audible, it's on Kindle, and it's in bookstores, too. You get it, you know, Barnes & Noble, places like that. And uh, I have, uh, if if you're interested in some of the stories that are absolutely free, it's the Tobolowski Files, and you could find the Tobolowski Files usually on David Chen's website, com, which is one of the best movie sites in the world. And uh, and he has a special section of that for the Tubulowski files, but there's like 86 hours of wow. me telling stories of the stuff that was on NPR, and it's all free and no salesman will call. You know, <laughs> we 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 are not no commercials, no nothing. It's it's just just the story for the story's sake, and I get letters from. I'm still saying letters. Nobody writes letters. I get emails from all over the world of people who listen to the stories you know bands that are touring that listen to it of people who do it while they exercise and they're listening to the stories so I get a bunch of great emails all the time for it so that that's fun that's where you could get the stories and and I have a website which is steventobolosky.com
0: so you just have to spell my name right <laughs> Well, uh, we we really appreciate having you on the show, and I hope everybody takes the opportunity to take a look at uh, what you have to offer because I think uh, there's something in it for everybody.
2: Well, thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I appreciate the time, too. Absolutely. All right. You, so
2: You betcha.